The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Now, we haven't got time to do a survey of, of the Greek tradition and the Roman tradition and the liberal arts and Christianization and all of that, but it is significant to point out that I think, as uh, Professor Sandin said earlier this week, politics and uh, the political life of the state is downstream of culture. So actually, if we just think about political life and the state and changing legislation and manifestos and those kinds of things, but aren't thinking more broadly about culture, actually we're not going to be impacting the areas which most influence the political life of the state. And actually, many of the powerful social ideas that have influenced us today are first social ideas that were promulgated through the arts. Through the arts. Literary, musical, artistic, theatrical, cinematic, and so on. In fact, a lot of these ideas that have influenced political life today began as works of imagination. For example, Thomas More's uh, imaginative exercise, Utopia, which was hugely influential in communistic thinking. So the first thing we need to do is think about the big uh, picture when we think about the arts, to borrow an artistic phrase. That's what we call it, the big picture. What is the big picture? Now, oftentimes, the arts have been uh, not just neglected by Christians, they've actually been rejected by Christians. And part of the reason for that is for some of the anti-Christian overtones that have been so prevalent and remain prevalent in the art world. For example, theatre and music hall were associated for a very long time with prostitution and loose living. And to be fair, that's because... There was a lot of prostitution and loose living uh, in those areas. And so evangelicals, in particular, uh, tended to uh, see these areas as um, uh, well offside and not to be uh, engaged in uh, by Christians. Nonetheless, actually, in the medieval era, in the Christian era, uh, the arts were put to use, significant use, by the church, the church institutes. And that, of course, is a legitimate function for arts to be put to the use specifically of the church as an institution. So there was the artisan who was hired by the church to, for paintings and frescoes and mosaics and so forth. There were musicians who were hired and commissioned by the church. A lot of the great composers, a lot of the, um, uh, the, 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 the marvelous pieces of music that, we, that, uh, that, that you would, if you turn on classic FM, that you're listening to, the different types of classical forms of music, uh, were commissioned for uh, sacramental purposes in the church. Sacred art, then. So, <clears throat> the church did put the arts to use, but then with the 18th century, uh, People, certain people began to focus specifically in on a given area of art, and the arts began to make more room for themselves outside of simply uh, the church, being put to use by the church. And actually various arts began to be steadily differentiated in Western society. And then we had the emergence of the professional artist. That's somebody who literally did that for uh, a living. So let's think just for a moment about the place of art today 
in uh, society. First, we have to think about just a few biblical realities, and this is all by way of introduction, actually, to our, our next uh, speaker, uh, or at least broadly introduces the themes that some of our next speaker will be dealing with. The I began this week by saying that culture, broadly speaking, was the purpose for which, man for which God created man in the earth, to turn creation into a culture, a God-glorifying one, that that was why we were made. I mean, all of this week, with all the detail and all the, all the issues, is in the end a battle for the direction of life in creation, of how, how are human beings going to deal with all the different aspects of creational life and reality including human social relationships, society, legal relationships, political relationships, social relationships, civic relationships, educational relationships, all of these things. That's what we're talking about. And we were called to turn God's creation as God's image bearers and, the, and as the apex of creation to be vice-gerents under God, image bearers, as we go about the work of making culture. <coughs> Now, we can't begin our creative work the way God does, of course. We don't begin ex nihilo. We don't begin from nothing. I mean, a lot of people think that we can, but we can't. We actually begin with the uh, structures, with the pre-existing material. We're like potters. We're creating things, <clears throat> cultural artifacts of beauty, that are bringing to light, that bring to light various aspects of the meaning of life. That's what we're doing. When you do any form of, uh, you're engaged in any form of artistic endeavor, any sort of aesthetic endeavor, you're, you're bringing to light certain aspects of the meaning of life. And so to see the importance of the arts as we image God as creators, we need to think, uh, be reminded first that God's creation is good. Creation is good. In fact, on the sixth day, God declared his work very good. And so despite all that we've considered this week about the pollution of sin and the fall, and so on, that does not destroy the distortion of God's creation, does not destroy the goodness of God's creation. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now hopefully you will have picked up throughout this week that the contours of the Christian view of reality is a good creation, a fall into ruin and sin and distortion and redemption by Jesus Christ. Renewal, restoration, reconciliation, and so on. The flourishing of the kingdom of God. And redemption is fundamentally about the reconciliation of all things to God. Now, we look around and we see every single aspect of life affected by Sin, by distortion, or what we might call anti-normativity. So the visible and invisible things of God's creation have been subject to distortion, used in an anti-normative way. In the end, biblical law, the gospel, is about God's norms for creation. But the Bible never identifies the creation with sin itself. The distortion of creation should never be identified with creation itself. We, we must understand that scripturally. Sin does not abolish creation. And it cannot be directly identified with creation. Let me give you an example. 
doesn't matter how intertwined creation and sin may have become, that has not destroyed God's good creation. So prostitution does not eliminate the goodness of human sexuality. Tyranny, uh, tyranny and dictatorship do not eliminate the goodness of God's ordination of the state. Anarchy and radical subjectivism and moral perversion in the arts does not, dis- does not destroy the creational legitimacy of the arts. Sin attaches itself to creation. I think I was chatting with one of you this week about this. Sin attaches itself to creation like a parasite. That's how it acts. It's, it, it, Islam, for example, is a parasite upon Christianity. It has to, all these distortions have to feed off God's creational norms in order to gain any kind of hold in creation. They're parasites, distorting, marring, etc., so we've got uh, essentially two orders here. We have God's good creation, and then we have either the distortion, the orientation of sin, or an orientation of redemption with respect to the direction of what's taking place in God's good creation. So we have creation, and then we have two directions, redemptive, reconciling, or distorting and polluting. Think of it this way. The relation of creation to sin and redemption is like the healing of a body or the sickness of a body. Creation is God's order, God's norms. Sin is like sickness in the body. Redemption is like the healing, the restoration of the body. Sin, in that sense, is always a caricature. It's trying to distort the image. And yet, nonetheless... Even in a sinful world, when we look at the structures and and norms, we recognize that there are certain uh, recognizable features of the things that have been distorted by sin. In all the things that man does that are sinful, you can still see within it a recognizable feature of what it was supposed to be. So, irrational, muddled thinking is still thinking. A non-Christian university is still a school. A badly flawed church is still a church. Anti-normative, sin-polluted art is still art. And so this leads us to a very basic distinction, and I think I discussed it again in the first session. I'm reminding you of it as you come to the end, to come full circle. Distinction between structure and direction. Structure is the creation order, the creational norms that constitutes everything. Structure is found in God's word, his law word, his decree. Direction concerns these orders of sin and redemption. So as you go back on Monday to whatever it is you're doing, you remember that God's creation is good, but there's two directions. The structures are good, the norms are good, the creation is good, but there's two directions. And anything in creation can be oriented one way or the other, towards obedience or towards disobedience. Whether that's art or scholarship or education or human sexuality or the activity of corporations, whatever. And actually God's word is continuously and always within creation. This is why we must never despair. God's word, which created all things and sustains all things, is always a countervailing force against all of man's efforts to distort and pollute and corrupt God's good creation. That's why it doesn't matter how hard man tries, in the end... He will not be able to completely overturn God's creation. He cannot. All we do in life then, well, 
manifest one of these two tendencies. The art of the non-believer, though art, will have true insights, even if only about the nature and character of sin. You see, even man in his apostasy and sin and rebellion is saying something about God, about his apostasy. Non-Christian art will portray the tragic depths of man's distortion of creation and his subconscious fears about life and death. The Japanese writer and storyteller Harukai Marukami said this, Everyone deep in their hearts is waiting for the end of the world to come. Everyone deep in their hearts is waiting for the end of the world to come. So the gospel of Christ comes to us, changes our lives, and it's like a healing balm, an antidote to the distortion all around us. So we must never conflate structure and direction with one another. Direction can never be reduced to the structure, so we cannot say, ah, the arts are bad, or this is evil, or that's bad. We do not throw out dance because it's debased by some people. We don't get rid of music because a lot of it is very bad. The theatre isn't to be abolished simply because a lot of it is absurd. Now, my wife was uh, trained in dance and theatre, and uh, when we were first engaged, she dragged me around to all of these sort of fringe shows in London. um, uh, And... (laughs) Uh, a lot of it was absurd theatre. You know, it was still art, almost. Um, <laughs> but a lot of it was... Abs- but we don't throw, get rid of theatre simply because some of it is absurd. Fine art. We don't get rid of fine art because at the Tate Modern, you know, a black line down a white canvas is put up and hailed as a piece of artwork. Or worse still, you know, um, uh, excrement is placed on a plate behind some glass... And then and we're told that's or naked people are running around in circles. Um, and, and so the, the ridiculous things that happen doesn't mean we should get rid of art. You get the point. Evil is not essential to creation. It's a parasite. And so nothing in the world should be despaired of. Albert Walters, Canadian theologian, he said this. The everyday components of our lives, our family, our sexuality, our thinking, our emotions, our work are the structural things that are involved and at stake in the pull of sin and grace. The directional battle does not take place on a spiritual plane above creaturely reality, but rather occurs in and for concrete reality of the earthly creation. That's where the battle is taking place. You know, we have tended, we talked about this this week, this kind of dualism to say, well, the battle's kind of up there, And actually, we were singing a song today, which I will have to mention to my dear friend, John Painter. They did a brilliant job, didn't they, this week in leading worship. We sang a song today, which I didn't entirely agree with. You know, we do have to watch what we sing, right? Because as A.W. Tozer said, Christians don't speak lies, they sing them. You know, I surrender all, and so on. Um, We have a tendency to reduce the kingship, right? We sing about Christ as king and ruler of the heavens, Jesus is a lot more than the king and ruler of the heavens. He's the king and ruler of the earth. He's the ruler. He's the king of the rulers of the earth. Okay? 
So this battle is taking place right here in the direction of everything. Now, when you look at scripture in the arts, and this could be a lecture in and of itself, there's some fascinating reference to, to the arts, fascinating references to the, to the various different arts. And even when you read the Bible and you read the Psalms or the Song of Solomon, for example, you're obviously reading um, the Word of God, but it's also poetry. And there's references in the wisdom literature of the Bible especially to all kinds of music and dance and expression of the full, the totality of the human person. But Israel, more generally, as God's covenant people, we see that he act God actually anointed and gifted people in various different arts for his purposes. So the tabernacle, the temple in the Old Testament, the center of worship, the dwelling of God, the, ta the tabernacle was actually an artistic recreation in many respects of the Garden of Eden. Because it was there that you went into the temple where you could have fellowship with God, just as the cherubim guarded the entrance to Eden after the fall. The cherubim are there over the mercy seat. Only the priest is allowed to enter into the presence of God. The high priest into the Holy of Holies. And it was from this place, the, the, the prophets depict the temple as the place from out of which the healing and renewal of God's grace and life is to flow out to all the nations, like a river flowing out of the temple. Of course, Christ is the temple, and we are now the temple of the living God. He's the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. In the construction of that tabernacle in Exodus 31, verses 1 through 11, we read these very fascinating words. The Lord also spoke to Moses, look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. This is Exodus 31, 1 through 11. I have, to f I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting and to carve wood for work in every craft. I have also selected Aholiab, son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be with him. I have placed wisdom within every skilled craftsman in order to make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that's on top of it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table with the utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basins with its stands, the specially woven garments both the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons to serve as priests, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the sanctuary. They must make them according to all that I have commanded you. That is fascinating, isn't it? That God actually filled people with his spirit and anointed them for all kinds of artistic endeavors for the purpose of building his sanctuary. Now we are building the sanctuary of the Lord. We are extending Eden throughout the earth. That's the cultural mandate. That's the great commission. We're extending the rule and reign of Christ throughout all of the earth. So we are anointed as priests and as artisans and as, in all these different areas to serve God. Now, how many of you actually viewed your calling in that light? Oh, no, I do do a bit of graphic design. <laughs> this is actually who we're called to be. This aesthetic aspect of life, and there's an aesthetic aspect to every part of your life. When you got up this morning and came down to breakfast, you were conscious of an aesthetic aspect of your life because you probably brushed your hair, 
got dressed. I thought, no, that, that doesn't quite go. You know, somebody said to me today, Joe, you look good in purple. I said, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it's an artistic talent that I have. Um, there's an aesthetic aspect to everything we do in life. The way you lay the table, the way you arrange your home. I mean, you're, we're constantly reflecting on the aesthetic aspect of our lives. And that is all about sanctification again. It's a directional battle in creation. That's why we make a distinction between beauty and ugliness, between harmony and disharmony, between um, <coughs> discord and melody, harmony. So everything that's been deformed by sin through Christ and the gospel and as God's work through us as his people is bringing about regeneration and renewal. And we are his co-workers in the arts to extend his temple. So to reform the arts begins by attaching oneself to the features of an established order in the arts that reflects some kind of normativity and obedience to creational law. So what do I mean by that? The point of departure for our engagement in the arts is what is historically given right now. Right? When we say Christian arts, we don't say, right, let's destroy all of the arts. That's what this Muslim is, Islam is about. I shouldn't say Muslims. All, Islam is about that. Let's blow, up, let's blow up all the temples. Let's blow up all the ancient uh, sites. Let's destroy the art. Let's ban music. Okay? We, don't, we don't do that. What we, say, what we do is we say, okay, where are the arts at right now? Historically, that's our point of departure. How can we now, looking at what's left of normativity in those arts, be about the work of renewal and cleansing and purifying and perfecting and restoring what's there? How can we engage in that? Now, when that aesthetic aspect of life that we're all engaged in every day when we get dressed and when we set the table and when we paint our house, whatever it may be, when that kind of intensifies and becomes the focus of particular attention and professional expertise begins to be developed, we call it artistic activity. So obviously when you get dressed and you come downstairs, you don't think, oh, I'm such a great artist. You know, that, that's an, that's an, that's an, as, an aesthetic aspect of, your, of life that we're all engaged in. But there are some people who devote incredible amounts of time and attention, even their lives, to artistic endeavour, to this aesthetic aspect. My daughter, my oldest daughter, who's 15, she's uh, uh, been devoting herself to dance and to music. So she's been done 10 years of, of ballet and jazz and contemporary dance, and she's um, uh, just doing a grade 8 exam in piano, and she's playing clarinet, and she wants a career in the arts. Okay? And that does scare me a little bit. Um, because of where the arts are at. So I'm interested in its renewal and its restoration. Okay. She wants to be a professional. Now that denotes honed, consummate skill. And you have to work hard to get to that kind of level. In other words, just because you can sing during the worship doesn't mean that other people want to listen to you. <laughs> okay, on your own, right? Uh, I mean, God wants to listen. So just take comfort in that. But, you know, it would be difficult for some of us to say, you know what, I love singing, um, so what, you know, pay 25 bucks, come back tonight, and I'll sing you a few songs. You know, there are some people who are worth listening to like that, right? But, but that's because they've trained. They've given time and attention to it. You know, um, I, can, I can draw, you know, I can paint, but nobody would <laughs> pay anything to look at what I can paint, okay? And nobody would purchase anything that I could paint or draw. 
So art is about imaginative craftsmanship. One great Christian scholar of the arts, Calvin Seavell, he said this about imaginative craftsmanship, about the arts. He says that objects or events produced by imaginative humans who have the skill to give media, that is stone or paint or words or voice, a defining quality of elusivity that brings nuanced knowledge to others who give the object informed attention. Now that sounds like double Dutch, but what is he saying? He's from a Dutch background, actually. He's saying that there is, there is the media of stone or of word or of voice or of words, and imaginative human beings, and we're all imaginative to a degree, um, who have honed their skill and give focused attention to a particular media, try and bring out uh, elusively nuanced knowledge so that when you give what they're doing particular focused attention, that, that knowledge is communicated to you. Now, it's elusive in the sense that it's not completely obvious. And that, isn't that what we usually associate with kind of bad art, right? If it's too completely obvious and in your face, uh, it, explicit mention of everything is not necessarily, it is usually not regarded as art. Elusivity is like a suggestiveness, right? So, for example, um, the song we heard, Melissa. Melissa, the other night, okay? Um, Melissa's a Wilberforce grad. Now, that, that song about the rose petals floating down the Thames, yeah, that's elusivity, right? So the story she was telling about life and abortion and everything wasn't a song about, you know, the blood and guts of abortion. It, was, it was, had an artistic quality to it. That's what made it artistic, okay? So this distinguishes actually what's merely harmonious or well-formed or skillful from art. Because art isn't just about technical skill. You do need some technical skill to be an artist. But you are trying to communicate meaning and knowledge in a creative and suggestive way. And actually, this is what uh, C.S. Lewis got mentioned earlier. This is what people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were trying to do with their writing. And uh, Lewis talked about his right, the, the, the idea of his fiction, getting past those watchful dragons where people, you can actually smuggle things past people about the truth when it's in art, when it's elusive, right? When it's not, so it doesn't have to be in a debate, right? You can actually get things into people's hearts and minds through the arts in this elusive, creative way. So very quickly, because time is pretty much up, when we try and redirect art, what does art look like that would liberate and reconcile and reform and edify well, let me just say this very quickly. First, it doesn't have to be about explicitly biblical subject matter. It doesn't have to be evangelistic. and It doesn't have to be part of a liturgical service being put to some sacred use. Now, that's not to say that wonderful Christian art, some of it, isn't dealing directly with biblical material, like Mel Gibson's incredible film, The Passion of the Christ. There's something about explicitly biblical material that is uh, artistic. But to, for something to be Christian art, it doesn't have to be dealing with some explicit point of theology or some particular story in the Bible. It's about direction, remember. And all of creation belongs to the Lord. So we're elusively suggesting the true meaning of reality in, the, in our arts. And it doesn't have to be dealing with explicitly biblical subject matter. It's always dealing implicitly with biblical subject matter, but not explicitly. It doesn't have to be evangelistic. The number of times I've heard pastors sort of say, you know, that a theatre production is put on at Christmas or a music production is put on and the afters are like, well, you know, I did, where was the gospel? 
Well, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't see it. You didn't hear it. But well, because the cross wasn't in it, because because some direct call to repentance and conversion wasn't in it. That that makes it not as though it's not valuable. This is a terrible mistake that evangelicals have made. That something is not art unless it's got some explicit mention or is not appealing for people to come to Jesus. In fact, I would say that a lot of stuff that passes for art that's doing that actually isn't art. So when the Christian film industry, and it's getting better, it is getting better, but some of the Christian film industry, the films were, there'd always be some cheese-tastic scene (laughs) where, you know, the father and the son who are mending their broken relationship go and sit down on a bench and the sun shines through the trees and it makes the cross in the light on the ground and they kneel down and have a prayer together. and And it's just like, come, can we not say it a bit more creatively than that, right? That doesn't make it good art or a truly Christian movie. It just makes it bad art and, and frankly, often embarrassing, right? So art can deal with these things, and, of course, it can be part of corporate worship, but it's not qualified by that use. So if you're in the arts in a diff- various different fields, just because you're not doing it in a church, you're not dealing with explicitly Christian material, doesn't mean it can't be oriented and directed to the glory of Christ. What, what must Christian art do? Well, it, it has to. Calvin Seaveld, who I think is brilliant on this, he, he says that it's, it has to be wholesome bread. It's, it's imaginative fiber, he says, that battles lightweight superficiality that fails to feed. So I would suggest that multitudes of people on a Saturday night go to the cinema and they, in, 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 they consume lightweight superficiality that doesn't feed them. Not always. Sliced white. Not whole bread, not, not good, as we used to call it when we were kids, when my mum actually made it, heavy bread, right? It's the kind of bread that, you know, if you eat one slice, you don't need to eat for another week. We couldn't stand it, actually, because it's too heavy to do it. But, but he's trying to say Christian art is about giving wholesome bread to the social order that feeds and nourishes and nurtures the imagination in a way that is, brings health and life. It's imaginative fiber. And to qualify as art, it must, be, it must have this elusive quality. So this real bread, this imaginative fiber, this is the redemptive role, uh, this redirecting of art, this restorative role that art can play in society. And it doesn't have to be imprisoned in the realm of high art. So again, sometimes when we think of the arts, we think, okay, well, Christian art, we really do need to be thinking about you know, Mozart and Bach and, and the Rembrandt and so on. And okay, not everybody is into or necessarily appreciates high art okay and high art can often be simply an echo chamber for self-important critics and curators and dealers to talk their own language so so neither are we saying you know it has to be some kind of exclusive club everything we do has this latent aesthetic imaginative aspect and so we should see art as an important component in this manifestation of the gospel and in a national culture's well-being. We should be involved in the arts because the arts are shaping people's ideas and opinions and thinking about reality all the time, every day. In fact, I would argue that really the arts are shaping people much more than watching the BBC, much more than laws that get passed that they don't know anything about. Right? Because most people, as we've pointed out this week, you know, a lot of Christians aren't even aware when a law has changed in the country. Because okay? those laws are actually responding to culture. They're downstream of culture. 
the, the, the artists are shaping the imagination of people every day in these different forms of art. What are we doing? How are we responding? Oh, yeah, that's a, that, you know, when I was, when I was growing up, I was in a, in a music band, okay? Okay, don't tell anyone, we were called the Boot Brothers. Because <laughs> uh, I have three brothers, and we were in this we had, with musical band, and uh, we toured around the country, you wouldn't remember, you weren't born. Um, and uh, uh, it was amazing how in the, 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 the church denomination that we moved in, um, most of the talks on the arts were about how demonic rock music was, how there was backward masking on lots of records and you might turn into a sort of antichrist demon crusher uh, for ACDC. Uh, and, and, and it's almost as though there's a demonic B-flat. Okay? Well, actually, no, those are, the, those are the structures. Those are the norms. We're all using the same B-flat. But what's the direction of our music? And we receive letters from people saying, pray against your local Christian music group and stuff like that. It's like as though the music itself was wrong. Whilst, whilst, the, whilst the music industry, and, and you think about what's happened, I often say this, that even, you know, frankly, guys, back in the 80s, you know, when I was growing up, secular musicians still knew how to think, sing about things that were actually meaningful, like the Cold War and so on. Now, it's just literally about fornication. So, there has been a very much a downward trend. Where is the wholesome bread that Christians are bringing into all of this? We need to feed the soul. And the arts have this potential to heal the heart and to bring hearts and minds into captivity to Jesus Christ. We can't see our art as autonomous. We have to work in terms of God's laws, his norms, his structures of meaning. We don't re reinvent reality through the arts. But with a sanctified imagination, we're expressing the nuanced meaning and knowledge of the truth to people. Sanctified art is not dull, it's not prudish, it's not sanitized. Nobody can read the prophets and there find a sanitized existence. Or the wisdom literature, or the Song of Solomon. Art, after all, is about reality, and our art, our theatre, our symphony, our painting, our whatever it is, participates in the great drama of God's redemptive work. Again, um, I love what Siobald says here. He says, in my Reformation faith thought tradition, world reality is called Theatrum Dei, the theatre of God. We're already in God's theatre. So the question is, what part are we called to play uh, in it? This is where God is working out his uh, purposes. Our art takes place in Jerusalem and in Babylon, in exile. That is to say, the whole world right now, based on what I've said about structure and direction. The whole world is both Jerusalem and Babylon. It's a battle between the two. Jerusalem and Babylon are both out there. How do we make our art align with Jerusalem? And as such, we will either um, work in terms of the one or the other. So we don't, we're not to hate culture, nor are we to conform to culture we're to seek its recovery its restoration and seek the good of all in bringing this nourishment this artistic nourishment to a culture so as one theologian has put it he says quote when artworks jokes and cinematic entertainments are living sacrifices of thanksgiving like the biblical psalms weeping with the violated and rejoicing with the grateful then a person or community's artistic performance and products 
shall give non-hegemonic leadership in society that bodes prophetic shalom, which is to say it brings peace and shalom. It brings leadership. It doesn't try and enforce and coerce an idea, hegemony, but it brings leadership through life. And that is the, what we are meant to reflect. You know, creation is a beautiful and a complex thing, isn't it? When, you look, when we look around ourselves, it's a, we're surrounded by all of God's lavish beauty and all this complexity, as well as brokenness and distortion. And so the healing and restoration of infected human culture is going to take focused and embattled effort on the part of God's people. That's not because it's our work. We don't accomplish it in our own power. But if we're actually going to uh, engage the culture meaningfully in this area... Being shoddy, being careless, being rubbish isn't good enough. It needs to be focused, diligent, excellent, hard work, bringing true nourishment to a culture that is starving. We're adopted as as apprentices in the architectural construction of a society whose builder and maker is God. He's the builder and maker. He's the architect. We're apprentices. And so we serve in that great artistic effort and this all this artistic effort challenges it prompts it suggests it soothes it draws people to the hope that is found finally in the kingdom life of jesus christ thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the ezra institute for contemporary christianity please feel free to share it with friends but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the eicc thank you